evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory for our Stewart Observatory public evening lecture. And we also welcome those of you watching this podcast on the World Wide Web, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu, or watching the uh, podcast at iTunes U, the University of Arizona page. Uh, first of all, the bad news, it's cloudy. So the telescope will not be open for public viewing tonight. You wouldn't be able to see much. Um, if there are any students here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your notes, and that will be down at this table at the conclusion of tonight's question and answer period after the lecture. Let's see. Uh, there are two more lectures on our schedule for this fall. Basically, it'll be the Monday after Thanksgiving and then the next Monday. We can't do it every two weeks because there's a final exam scheduled in here that next Monday. So we've got to do two in a row. And they'll both be about black holes from the theoretical point of view and then from the observational point of view. So we're looking forward to that. But tonight, we have an interesting lecture. I would like to introduce our friend, Major James McGahey. Major McGahey has, let's see, a bachelor's degree from Georgia Tech in industrial management and engineering. From Webster University, he has a master's degree in psychology. He also has a master of business administration. And from University of Arizona, here at Stewart Observatory, he got a master's of science degree in astronomy. Major McGahey is a 22-year veteran of the United States Air Force. He is a pilot and a paratrooper, or parachuter, I should say. And, um, but I guess his side job is he is a, a skeptic. Uh, he is an investigator. And he has written many articles on, um, how should I say, the scientific view of certain uh, pseudoscience uh, events and uh, phenomenon. Uh, he is quite often used by document producers and directors. If you, at night, late at night, peruse the Science Channel, what is it, uh, National Geographic, Sci-Fi, a lot of these documentaries will have him on, you know, sort of that five minutes at the end for the scientific explanation of what they're talking about. I think he was most recently seen in a documentary called NASA Secret Files, which aired on the National Geographic Channel. So he's sought out by, um, uh, I know, the documentary world and the press to get uh, views. And he knows a lot about what the Air Force does. And he knows a lot about issues involving uh, unidentified flying objects. So I thought, it's 70 years ago that something happened at Roswell. Let's find out what really happened. Major McGahey. Okay, oh, oh, I thought you meant for the chest. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I always put in a disclaimer when I talk because I am not talking for the United States Air Force. The United States Air Force wants nothing to do with this subject whatsoever since 1969. Uh, I'm speaking for myself. However, yes, that's me a long time ago. Uh, I did hold a top secret SCI security clearance. I worked on nuclear weapons, overhead reconnaissance, intelligence, and electronic warfare while I was in the military. And I also flew, and I actually worked in so-called Area 51, which has never been called Area 51 by the Air Force. Uh, but uh, I'm speaking for myself. A couple of quick definitions here. Pseudoscience, of course, is false science. Uh, myth is an important part of this story tonight. Uh, it functions as something that is true, which actually is not. But it has all kinds of psychological effects that people have a real attachment to myth. And myth still exists today and all kinds of things that go on in trying to make people feel comfortable 
about the world around them. When I speak of alien I'm talking, or extraterrestrial, I'm speaking of intelligent life. Uh, and when we're talking about spacecraft, the original uh, definition was flying disc, then it became flying saucer, and then it became UFO in 1952. And of course, this is what people were seeing or claiming to see in those days. And there are many theories about these aliens. The one we most, we're going to talk about is the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but many UFO believers believe all of these things as well. Time travelers, people, interdimensional uh, aliens, uh, as well as people actually living in the center of the Earth. Now, obviously I'm talking about this kind of alien, intelligent life, not some microbe that flew here on an asteroid. And also, if we were ever to meet aliens, which kind would it be? Artificial intelligence or biological? Or would it be something more akin to this, which wouldn't necessarily be something we would want to meet? The polls say that people believe in the United States, 45 to 60 percent, it varies, uh, in aliens and UFOs. But it's kind of contradictory. They actually believe the government is hiding this. 71% of the public believes that, that they're actually hiding this. And when we talk about believers in UFOs, they, they go in all kinds of categories. There's the, the contactees, which have actually talked to the aliens, abductees, which have been sexually molested generally by aliens, con men. Lots of conspiracy nuts that are, these folks are actually dangerous. Uh, religions here, these are all religions based on UFOs. Cults, Heaven Gate, and Scientology. I was on television about this when it happened, and it was an interesting event because the one person who hadn't killed himself in Heaven's Gate uh, came on the show, he had been away that day, and I'm blamed for him killing himself the next day after the show, uh, but I don't feel any guilt about it whatsoever. Uh, any rate, so we have, this is the claim of physical evidence about this whole phenomena, and you'll see here that they claim these things, and all of this turns out to either be natural or hoaxes, most of the claims are lights in the sky, uh, which can be anything. Thousands of things cause lights in the sky. And this has obviously been influenced over the years by many things in popular culture, science fiction, lots of conspiracy theories, and this, myth, magic, and superstition. Science fiction had a profound effect in the early days of this. Because if you remember the movies in the 1950s, lots of them had actual flying saucers in them, but there were aliens were involved. The media, and of course, then the Cold War played a tremendous part in this. The Russians, you've heard lately about all the Russian influence on our election. I find it rather interesting because the Russians have been trying to influence American society for over 70 years. You've just never heard about it. Um, and the CIA and the Air Force and a number of people were very, very concerned about this and it plays into what we're going to be talking about tonight. Well, the sky, which of course where UFOs and aliens are coming from, is in a mythical sense always been this distant thing and humans have this very interesting uh, allure to the sky, and the fact that it's distant and uh, uncontrollable has always been a very mystical thing for human beings. Whether it be superhumans or gods, humans have always looked to it, and this has bridged the gap for many, many people between these two ideas. So we need to talk about a little bit about the prehistory before we get into Roswell, because the prehistory of this has a profound impact on what actually happened. 
New Mexico in 1945, at the end of the war, all of these are scientific locations, research institutions, or military bases that were in, uh, in New Mexico. You'll notice Roswell is right here. This is the White Sands Missile Range here. You've got Los Alamos up here. You've got numerous scientific uh, bases, uh, military bases around the, uh, the state. And of course, this happened about two years before Roswell. This, of course, is J. Op uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer and Leslie Groves, who headed up the Manhattan Project. This is Trinity, what's left of it. There were a number of buildings around here, uh, big tower and everything. It didn't blow up. It vaporized. And the ground around here has all kinds of uh, crystalline structures, radioactive crystalline structures where the soil itself crystal melted and crystallized. They actually call it trinonite. Uh, but this is a famous phrase, a Hindu saying that J. Robert Oppenheimer mentioned when they detonated Trinity. Now I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Here are some of the bases that are key in New Mexico today, Kirkland Cannon and Holloman. Roswell was renamed Walker Air Force Base and closed in 1967, was given to uh, the Roswell City. Uh, and of course, these are the national labs that are still there. Now, the story of UFOs, not just about Roswell, starts in 1945. It gets crystallized in 1947. It starts with this man right here who is singularly responsible for the whole UFO phenomenon. He was the editor of Amazing Stories magazine. It was a science fiction magazine that was geared to teenage boys and young 20-something adults, and it was very popular. A man named Robert Shaver sent an article, a science fiction article, into Ray, and he decided to change it and more or less put his own name on it and created for two years the fact that this article was really true. It wasn't science fiction. And what it was about was aliens coming to Earth some of them living inside the Earth, some of them living outside the Earth, telepathically communicating with humans through a welding machine. <laughs> now, I'm just telling you what it said. But he promoted this, and it went crazy. And a number of the science fiction readers were upset because he kept saying it was true. And so they more or less fired him, and he wound up starting his own magazine. Uh, this is the first issue in 1945 of Amazing Stories, and you can see here's one of the aliens here, and this is a uh, welding machine, and, and I, this tended to be on the cover of every one of the, uh, or something like it. Uh, that may have been why they were selling magazines. Uh, but then, because they let him go, he created Fate Magazine. And this is the very first issue in uh, uh, January of 1948. And this man is Kenneth Arnold, who effectively had the first UFO sighting ever recorded. And Ray decided to make this into a very big deal and promoted the idea that this was really true and they were extraterrestrial. Here's just some of the things that Ray did. He created and promoted flying saucers, alien spaceships, UFOs, uh, ETs on Earth, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He was actually the first person to ever coin the phrase government cover-up, government conspiracies, men in black, just all of this he created. 
Now, the story of Kenneth Arnold and his sighting, June 24th, remember this date, in 1947, he saw what appeared to be nine particular aircraft flying along the ridgeline near Mount Rainier. And they were about, he claimed they were about the size of DC-4s. Uh, they were flat like pie pans. He actually said they looked like they were skipping off water like a saucer. And that's where flying saucer came from. This newspaper man the next day called them flying saucers, although that's never what um, Kenneth said. Because what Kenneth said, this is what it looked like. And what he saw was mountain wave mirages. I wrote about this many, many years ago. It was nothing particularly exciting, but he, he believed it was real. Uh, as a result of all this, the Air Force became concerned. They were concerned about not alien spacecraft. They were concerned about the Russians. And so in 1948, they pro founded Project Sign. Project Sign lasted for a year. Then they changed the name to Project Grudge and then Project Blue Book. And it went on from 1948 to 1969. The Air Force wanted out of it in the early 50s, but Congress would not let them close it. Uh, so they had to keep it going. And finally, they said, OK, enough is enough. We're going to conduct a, have a scientific independent study of what we've done. and if it's what we think it is, it's nothing, we're going to close it. And that's exactly what happened with the Condon Report, which was commissioned at the University of Colorado under the head of Dr. Edwin Condon. And uh, it officially closed in 1969. And officially, the Air Force never did another thing with UFOs. We'll talk about what sort of happened on that. And then in 1949, again, this is sort of associated with this, uh, there were a number of memorandums flying around between generals about this whole UFO issue because lots of people were seeing things in the sky. And again, when they say this, they're not talking about alien spacecraft, they're talking about Russian aircraft or Russian projects. They were really, really worried about this. And Project Twinkle was sort of the same thing. And uh, from 49 to 51, uh, that with green fireballs, which I spoke about uh, a year or two ago here, uh, which was nothing more than green fireballs. Uh, then, of course, culturally, this was one of the most popular magazines ever sold in history. And it was because there's a case for interplanetary saucers <laughs> up here. And there was an article in here about this. Uh, as you, or, uh, well, maybe not. Um, but then, by this time, the CIA and the Air Force are getting concerned about this. So they commissioned the Bechtel Corporation to come up with a panel to investigate what the Air Force had so far seen. And it was sponsored by them. And the Blue, Perk, Blue Book people came in and gave them everything they had. It was classified at the time. It wasn't declassified until 1966. But what it found was that it was, uh, there was nothing related to extraterrestrials. It was not a national security threat. Now, they're only referring to the reports of what UFOs were. But it could pose a threat to military communications. Uh, it could be used for subversive purposes by the Russians, which is actually what it says. Uh, so they were very concerned about this, even though they thought it was a national, uh, just a natural phenomenon. So what they came up with was that uh, there was nothing to worry about from an extraterrestrial standpoint, but it could be used to clog communication channels, and it was emphasizing that people should be trained to be able to recognize things in the sky so that they didn't have false identifications. Uh, also, it found basically no model of this. The fact that uh, 
this existed at all, the observations were uh, not anything to be concerned about from a scientific standpoint or from a national security standpoint. But the CIA said this, that they were very worried that UFO, UFOs, not alien spacecraft, could be used by the Soviets for disinformation campaign to create mass hysteria. This was 1953. So then they came up with the psychological warfare communications of, of, of this idea. There was a whole section in the CIA that dealt with this for many years, uh, looking at the relationships to defense hardware and distinguishing hardware from phantom, phantom objects. But the Air Force created a classified reporting system, which was still in existence when I was in the Air Force, where anything unusual would be reported by pilots if they saw it under Air Force Regulation 200-2. They recommended, unfortunately, it didn't happen, to set up an education campaign for critical thinking and rational thinking. What an interesting idea that the CIA should suggest that. Uh, uh, to minimize the risk of panic and false threats. And then in 1955, Blue Book, Special Report 14, what it basically was, was a declassified version of the first seven years of the reports to Blue Book, and they went, took it to the Bechtel Corporation to look at the 12 best cases. They had a number of very famous scientists, a number of uh, Nobel Prize winning scientists who came to look at this data. This was uh, secret at the time, and of course they didn't find anything. Then this magazine came out in about 1955. The entire magazine is about flying saucers, and not one skeptical word is in it. So then what happens is the Condon report it starts its two-year study in 1968, and it's later reviewed by the National Academy of Sciences. If any of you have seen, this is a paperback copy that was made of it. It's about a 1,000 pages, the entire report. And uh, Dr. Edwin Condon was severely criticized by UFO believers for this, but he was one of the most preeminent astrophysicists in the world at the time uh, that headed up this project. Uh, the Air Force originally tried to give it to MIT, and MIT didn't want any part of it. Uh, this is what a Blue Book report actually looks like here, along with a photo that came with it. Um, uh, Blue Book, of course, was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It never was bigger than 12 people. Most of the time, it was seven. It wasn't a big, huge program. Oops. That's Okay, and here's just some more things. You can see all kinds of things got turned in. This is this is just a, a reflection in the camera here, but uh, uh, here is the last head of Blue Book, Major Hector Quintilia. This is some of the stuff that was sent to Blue Book over the years to say it was alien. This is what he's holding in his hand here. Someone had gone to the trouble to get some exotic alloy between stainless steel and a little bit of titanium and melt a transistor radio inside of it <laughs> and send it to him and said, the aliens gave this to me. Um, and this is all kinds of other stuff that came in. Well, the conclusions to this were rather stark, and the UFO believers didn't like this. Remember, this was 1969, um, that they looked at this. There's no uh, sense in looking at this for advancement of science. There's no threat to national security. There's no need to investigate this, exactly what the Air Force wanted to hear. Uh, and then, uh, after they had done this, the Air Force was very concerned that nobody would believe this. 
So they sent the entire thing to the National Academy of Sciences for evaluation because they wanted a second opinion because they knew Congress wasn't going to like this or some members of Congress. And this is what they came back with, that it deserves, deserves to be a landmark journey in science that's taken since the days of Galileo and Kepler. This is the president of the National Academy of Sciences saying this. So the report was unanimous. The findings was no advanced technology. They're talking about all the reports in Blue Book. No threat to national security. No extraterrestrial vehicles. And it was closed. Uh, the scope was there was no secrecy involved, although the program was never higher than secret. Most of the time it was confidential. And there was no need to handle the reports, no ed federal agency. And most important thing about it was there's no physical reason to look at this, but you might have psychologists and sociologists look at it. And on the basis of this, the least likely explanation is the extraterrestrial hypothesis. This is the actual document where the Air Force closed the report in 1969. And Air Force policy since then, although this regulation doesn't exist anymore, but it was when I was in the Air Force, that individuals trying to report UFOs to the Air Force should be referred to local law enforcement without comment. At one point, this said, referred to NASA without comment. And NASA got really upset about that and said, please don't say that. And here it is. That's the entire document on the Air Force of what to do if somebody calls the Air Force about extraterrestrials and aliens and UFOs. Uh, what it says is there's no evidence, no threat to national security, so the Air Force is not interested and refer all reports to local law enforcement. Now let's talk about Roswell. The claim was, in 1947, that a flying disc had crashed on the Foster Ranch, which is a, was a very, very large historic ranch in New Mexico, and that some debris had been found. After 1978, we're going to talk a lot about after 1978 what happened, but something very different happened after 1978. So what supports this? Well, in, in 1947, there was some debris found. It was kind of unusual looking for the day. There were a few eyewitness accounts and some very old memories. So here's how the story goes. June 14, 1947, a classified top secret program working out of Alamogordo Army Airfield, not Roswell, was conducting a program that we'll talk about a little bit later, a balloon train that they sent aloft at a level altitude of 66,000 feet to try to detect nuclear detonations in Russia. And they had the technology to do this at the time. Highly classified, no one at Roswell knew about this. No one at 8th Army Air Corps knew about this. It was at Alamogordo. On June 14th, uh, Braswell finds some debris out on the ranch. Mac Braswell was the foreman of the Foster Ranch. Then on June 24th, we had the Kenneth Arnold sighting. And then as a result of this, lots of people start seeing UFOs and reporting them. And a, a number of newspapers offer a $3,000 reward for anyone that can bring them pieces of a flying disc. So on July 4th, Mac Braswell picks up some of this debris out on the ranch, not thinking much about it. And then on the 5th of July, he finds out about the reward. 
So he goes into Roswell, which is quite a drive from there. It's, a, it's about 70 miles by road, but it's about 40 miles by a, a, a straight line. And so Mac goes to town to see the sheriff, Sheriff Wilcox. And he goes there, and the sheriff calls us out to the Roswell base. And they get a hold of an intel officer named Jesse Marcel. And Jesse wants to go out and look at this. He's an intel officer, remember. And his assistant, Captain Kevin, go to the ranch and stay overnight. And they collect some debris out there. The next day, July 8th, they get on a B-29, which is what was based at Roswell at the time, and fly to Fort Worth, Texas, which is the headquarters for uh, those bases around that area in New Mexico. And he goes to Fort Worth, which is became Carswell uh, Air Force Base. Remember, this is Army Air Force's field, because until uh, 1948, it was the Army Air Corps, not the Air Force. And so this is where the whole thing gets out of hand. The press officer, a lieutenant, Hulk, decides to release a press release about this, saying that a flying disc has been recovered. Now, he has never even seen what they picked out, out of the ranch. Uh, he would leave the Air Force in a few months after this <laughs> um, by request because he didn't really get authorization to do this. So then on the 8th of July, uh, they, uh, uh, Jesse Marcel goes to General Ramey's office, a one-star general, war hero in World, World War II. He did all kinds of things. He was involved with the bikini uh, uh, atomic test. He was quite an interesting person. Um, at any rate, they go to Ramey's office, and they bring in what they picked up, what Jesse Marcel picked up out on the ranch. And General Ramey's looking at this, and he doesn't exactly know what it is. And his deputy, Colonel DeVos, comes in, and he's not exactly sure what it is. And then Warren Officer Newton walks in. He is the base weather officer. And he looks and he says, asks General Lamey, what, what are you doing? He says, well, we're looking at this flying disc from Roswell, at which point I get the impression, but I've never been able to confirm it, he started laughing um, because he knew what it was. It was a weather balloon and a raw wind radar target. And we'll talk about that a bit more. And so... Uh, then a press release comes out saying it was a radar target or a weather balloon. Now, it wasn't exactly that, but it was close enough. And then uh, Braswell puts out an article on July 9th saying he wished he'd never said anything because he's getting a lot of uh, hate mail, newspaper people bothering him, and no reward at this point. And so then the next day, the... The, the flying disc is explained here. This is in the Alamogordo News. So what did they find? What they brought into Ramey's office was tinfoil, paper, scotch tape, and balsa wood sticks, uh, a bundle about three feet long, eight inches diameter, and a bunch of rubber, uh, about 20 inches by eight inches, rolled up. And the whole thing weighed about five pounds. That's what they picked up, and this is what it looks like. Now, all I can say is uh, these are really some brave extraterrestrials if they're going to fly to Earth in this. <laughs> this is paper with aluminum. It had an, an aluminum pregnation uh, onto the paper. These are balsa wood sticks, which are held together by scotch tape, uh, literally scotch tape which has symbols on it because the people that the Air Force had contracted to make this were a toy company and they did a lot of fancy things with scotch tape with toys that had all these symbols on it which later became hieroglyphics. <laughs> now this is, as you can see, this is a, 
uh, Jesse Marcel. Uh, he doesn't look terribly happy at this point because Newton has already come into the office. But this is more interesting. This is General Ramey. And General Ramey really doesn't look happy because this is the Fort Worth Star-Telegram came out to photograph this in his office. And this is uh, Colonel DeBose, and you see he has a big smile on his face, chuckling about this, and you will notice Ramey does not have a smile on his face because this is, whole thing turned out to be very embarrassing. Within a week, this had all disappeared from the press, from everywhere, and Ramey was very happy that it happened. But here's the original Roswell paper, uh, Captures Flying Saucer on the Ranch, that was put out and gives details of them picking this up. And then this is when uh, uh, Braswell more or less said, I wish I'd never said anything about this. So what do we have? The evidence was that on fourth, the 4th of June, 1947, flight number four of Project Mogul's top secret program was lost as it was flying uh, out uh, towards the uh, Captain Mountain. Flight 4 had 23 neoprene, neoprene balloons and three raw, raw wind radar reflectors and some other material on it. What's interesting to note about this, nothing on the flight on the balloon train was classified. It was what it was doing and what was happening on the ground that was important. They had a chase plane, a B-29, following it as it went up in altitude. But that day was cloudy and they lost it in the clouds and they lost the balloon. This was on June 4th. Then, of course, we have the Kenneth Arnold story. And uh, then later on, Mac Roswell finds this on his ranch and brings it to town. It's important to note that this case, Kenneth Arnold story, is the second, um, second case in Blue Book, number two. This case, Roswell, is not in Blue Book, no mention of it. And we're going to talk about what Congressman Schiff did and what the Roswell reports happened a little bit later on. Okay, this is a raw wind radar reflector. It's a basically a big box kite held together by balsa, by scotch tape, balsa wood, and this special aluminum coated paper, which seemed mysterious in the day, but I doubt anyone in the room here would find it very mysterious today. This is what it looked like. These, this train was 600 feet long. And they had these targets in here and some instruments on here. And it was a level altitude event. This was very complicated what this did. To find this exact sonic range that you could listen to things halfway around the world that were occurring, you had to be at 66,000 feet. Because it's a, a, something that happens in the atmosphere right at that point where sound can travel all the way around the Earth. So they had special balloons on here that would deflate and inflate. They had other uh, devices that would burst the balloon so they could stabilize it at the right altitude. And here they're putting it together. This is at Alamogordo. And here's the actual watch of one going to altitude. Here's the famous hieroglyph. This is the scotch tape pattern that held the boss of wood sticks together that held it to the aluminum paper. So the conclusion on this is that Project Mogul indeed caused this event and some overactive imaginations, of course, by Jesse Marcel and, and Colonel Blanchard, who was a, a deputy wing uh, commander at uh, Roswell and 50-year-old mirrors. But the case will never die because it's one of the very few cases in all of ufology where there's actually some physical evidence. Bossel wood, aluminum foil, <laughs> neoprene rubber. Uh, so, at any rate, 
the fact is that Roswell was never classified, uh, it was never classified, Mogul was top secret, uh, I mean, uh, the Roswell event. It was not in Blue Book. It was never investigated by the Air Force, by anyone, until 1994. We'll talk about that in a moment. The incident is not mentioned in any UFO literature from 1947 to 1978. Not one entry. It disappeared. And we'll talk about that a bit. And of course, the evidence you got is those photos, and newspaper articles, and a couple of eyewitnesses to the event. So, other things about this, at the time, 1947, nothing was seen in the sky, nothing was seen crashing, nothing was investigated, no reports were made, there were no alien bodies, there was no technical analysis done, and no one at Roswell knew anything about Project Mogul. So, this whole story lies dormant for, 70, uh, for 31 years. Joe Nichols, a very famous skeptic, and myself wrote an article back in 2012, which we called the Roswellian Syndrome. And it definitely applies to Roswell, although it actually applies to other UFO cases as well. What we have here for 31 years has sort of disappeared. After it was debunked, there was no story, but the, s the speculation about it simmered all over the place, particularly in New Mexico at the time. And then the myth starts to begin, where the story goes underground, where myths start being formed. People start saying stories about what happened. A whole level of folklore begins and then hoaxes start to appear. And then you have a reemergence of it with new details, exaggerations, distortions, and mystery mongering. This is exactly what happened with Roswell. So the corpse rises from the dead. Uh, the case was forgotten for 31 years, but when it comes back, it's highly publicized in movies, television, and books. The comeback is due to a UFO believer named Stanton Friedman. He has made his entire living, most of his adult life, promoting UFOs, promoting government cover-ups. saying everybody that says UFOs aren't real is a liar and doesn't know what they're talking about. He heard some of the mystery mongering about Roswell. Remember, it's not in any of the literature. And he heard that uh, the intel officer had gone and seen some of this material, so he looks him up, and he finds him in Louisiana. He's a has a small television repair shop, uh, Jesse Marcel. He was also pounded out of the Air Force, let's say. He wasn't thrown out. But he left the Air Force back a couple of years after Roswell. And he tells a very different story this time about all kinds of strange things happening, strange materials, uh, people uh, switching materials and the photographs and all kinds of things. And Here's just a few of the things he claimed. He claimed he had a degree in nuclear physics. He had no degree. This is what he's claiming in 1978. Uh, he had a pilot. He had 3,000 hours. He was never a pilot. He had uh, a bunch of air medals that he never received. And as a result of this, about a year later, uh, the Roswellian incident book was written. And that's where the whole thing really started again, you know, 33 years later. I don't know if you recognize this name or not. He was a, the son of the Berlitz Language School uh, founder. He was a very rich man, but he spent most of his life writing pseudoscience and, and occult books. He's the one who wrote the book on the Bermuda Triangle. 
and the Philadelphia experiment where they made a destroyer invisible and all kinds of other weird stuff. But he teamed up with this UFO person who I met shortly after this date who's been a big promoter of UFOs over the years, William Moore. And at any rate, this is the book, and it claims all kinds of things, uh, UFOs crashing, bodies everywhere, all kinds of things, all of which, none of which are true. And it really started the story to begin again. Tied to this, seven years later, is something called Majestic 12 or MJ-12. It has a distinct fingerprint of William Moore on it. Can I absolutely prove he did it? No, but I'm 99% sure he did it. What it was, they claimed Stanton Friedman, uh, Moore, and one of his buddies here claimed that they had received in the mail a 35 millimeter undeveloped roll of film. And they developed it, and lo and behold, were all these, these uh, pages, about 20 odd pages, of secret documents with all kinds of famous people involved on UFO studies from 1947 to about 1952. And this, this was real, and it sort of looked real to someone who didn't know what a a classified document looked like because it was top secret documents and uh, supposed to be briefed to Eisenhower by Truman. And the 12 members on this that were on this committee for this so-called Majestic 12, MJ-12, were very famous people, the Secretary of Defense um, at the time and a number of other people. Donald Menzel, one of the most famous astrophysicists of the 20th century, was in this list. And they were all deceased at the time this was released. So when you look at the documents, I mean, when I saw them, I immediately knew they were a forgery because of a lot of things. But if you look at things, you can see here non-standard format. Have you ever seen anybody use that format for a date? Mysteriously, that's how William Moore signed all of his documents. Um, uh, you know, had a zero preceding the number, which nobody did in those days. It's typed on a typewriter that didn't exist in 1947. Um, so that kind of, you know, and then the classic thing of transferring a signature, we'll, we'll show you here in a second. But they went beyond this. One of these people who created this document went to the National Archives and inserted these documents into the National Archives. That is about 10 different federal crimes. The reason it got caught in the National Archives, the UFO believers believe this was real, but the reason it got caught there is every document in there is numbered. And there were no numbers on these documents. And the FBI and the National Archives and a number of professional examiners examined the documents and realized that they were a hoax. And then, of course, uh, think about this. Donald Menzel, who was one of the so-called 12 people on Majestic 12, wrote the first three books on debunking UFOs. So I hardly think he would have been involved in a classified program of saying UFOs were real. This is the Truman signature that was photocopied and put into the document. This is the first page you will notice the bogus written on this. I didn't write that on there, the FBI did. The FBI was very mad about this. If they ever found out who actually did this, they'd go to jail. So then we have another, some more books coming out. Uh, 1991, Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt come out. Now, by the way, there are six different versions today of the Roswell incident. Six. Uh, I'm only dealing with the first one. Uh, uh, they said there was crashed and aliens, and then Stanton Friedman comes out and he says there were two crashes because two alien ships collided with each other. 
And then he brings up this witness who is just a pathological liar who says all kinds of tales and tall tales and, and all kinds of things uh, that weren't true. And they promoted this for years until it got caught. And here's a couple of those books there. But then something interesting happens in 1993-94. Congressman Schiff of New Mexico had an aide, and she was married to a very prominent UFO believer. And she, he pressured her to pressure the congressman to go see what was real about Roswell. So he started making requests to the Air Force and to the General Accounting Office and the Secretary of Defense and everybody else saying, what do you know about Roswell? And they all came back and said, nothing. We have no files on it at all. And if you want to look at any documents, go look at the Air Force history uh, in Maxwell, Alabama. Well, he wasn't happy about this, so he then requested G GAO investigate Roswell. And so they did. They spent 18 months looking at this, spending lots of money, and came to the conclusion there was nothing recovered crash saucer at Roswell in 1947. But he wasn't happy. So then he started pressuring the Air Force, and the Air Force wound up having to do something they didn't want to do, or I'll speak to in a minute. Well, then you get, after this uh, came out, then you wind up with Friedman and Randall saying government cover-ups. This guy mysteriously pops up, Glenn Dennis, who was a mortician in Roswell at this time. He claims he went out, the Air Force asked him to go out and look at some bodies and stuff, which is, wasn't true. And, and then we get Schmidt, who helped Randall write the book, saying he was all this the PhD candidate and all this because he's a male man in New Mexico. Uh, so it, we get all this. Then we have a couple of uh, books that come out that are actually fairly uh, positive that, that take care of the whole issue of cover-ups. And then this is what I want to talk about here because this is what Schiff required to happen. What happened is the United States Air Force knew this was all bad press, so they assigned the history office at the Pentagon. This is a thousand-page report issued in 1995 that the historians at the history office and at the Pentagon went out and interviewed everyone who was still alive and tried to find anything in the Air Force records they possibly could that had anything to do with this subject. And they basically found nothing except for one thing I'll talk about in a second. Then something happened that they discovered while they were doing this history uh, uh, investigation that there had been a number of projects. Now, note, this is six years after Roswell. There had been a number of classified balloon projects in New Mexico investigating space flight, space travel. A number of this research was given by the Air Force to NASA. It's why they were able to go into space in the early 1960s. And one of the things was this right here, which was when Captain Kissinger went to 102,600 feet and jumped out of a balloon in free fall and, uh, to test high-altitude ejection and spacesuits. And this had gotten into the mythology. Remember, this is six years after Roswell, because people were seeing these projects out in the desert. The Air Force going out there with trucks and picking up big dummies. They were dropping from balloons and other things. And unfortunately, they actually dropped a disc that just looked just like a flying saucer. <laughs> and they dropped this disc as testing aerodynamics on it. And people saw the Air Force out there picking it up. Now, remember, this has nothing to do with Roswell. I want to emphasize that. But the people in New Mexico connected this. And then this was a report that was written a couple of years later about those projects in the early 50s. Now, the test group 
at Roswell, which was there in 1947. This is the only wing in the world that could drop atomic weapons at the time in 1947, was stationed at Roswell. This is where the test had been made for dropping the atomic bomb. They flew out of Roswell. A lot of people don't know that. Well, the test group there was known as the 509th Bomb Group. The military doesn't like keeping a lot of paperwork around needlessly, so they, they will have a squadron or unit historian who write everything up and put it in one place and summarize it. This is in the July 1947 history of the 509th Bomb Group. What you're seeing on the screen is the only official document ever written on Roswell by the United States Air Force. That's it, right there. The Office of Public Information was quite busy this month. Flying disc was reported in the possession of 509th. The object turned out to be a radar tracking balloon. That's it. That's it. Whole of everything the Air Force ever wrote down about Roswell, other than those two books, which were many years later. If these objects had existed, why were all these memos flying around? Uh, what is the probability of their existing? This is a top secret memo, a year after Roswell. All this classification Stanton Friedman and other people were saying that when Roswell happened, a number of Air Force people were going out threatening people around Roswell, saying, you better never say anything. Some of them said that the Air Force people said, we'll come and kill your children if you talk about this. And of course, this is totally absurd. And of course, it's against the law. You know, under, for those who don't know, them, this is the Uniform Code of Military Justice does not allow that, and the Air Force has, in peacetime, no authority off Air Force bases. So they can't go out and tell anybody what to do. Some facts about this. The incident was never classified. Mogul was. The incident was not in Blue Book, as I've said. The incident was never investigated until 1994, and there's no mention of it for 31 years anywhere. Then in 1995, we have this. This would be, this is so patently absurd as to be ridiculous, except when you know that a television channel paid Ray, producer, $5 million for a 17-minute video of this, claiming it was a dead body at Roswell. Now, it's a hoax, but you could tell it was a hoax because the, the thing just looks like a very, very bad, low-budget sci-fi movie dummy. Uh, but here is a telephone on the wall. It has a curly line in it, which didn't exist until 1955. So it would kind of be hard for this to be there in 1947. But now we have the Roswell Festival in 1995. We have the artifacts. We have tours. We have lectures. You can even buy vials of earth from the crash site. And here, here it is. Thousands of people go to this every year. And uh, they have all kinds of things. This, they have a big museum there about Roswell. And here's, of course, the uh, dead uh, alien, alien autopsy, which was not there in the early days. And then we have, of course, the people who go there. Uh, of course, Roswell has created a myth around traitors based on bad memories. This is a philosophical term that was given in 1948, interestingly enough. And uh, I, I don't want to go into the nature of that. But basically, bad memories, confabulation, fabrication of lies, and outright hoax. This whole thing, not just Roswell, UFOs, is, a, is based on myth, magic, and superstition, anecdotal stories, hoaxes, uh, hoaxes, bogus documents, and 
Astronomers like to think that there's lots of extraterrestrial life out there that it's not visited here but uh, because of big numbers. But we have a sample of one to Earth. We don't know. We're just speculating when we say that. And astronomers have never been interested in UFOs particularly because there's no empirical evidence. There's no phenomena to study because it's anecdotal stories. Uh, many of the reports violate the laws of physics. And of course, this is a big one. It's silly and asinine. <laughs> um, so if they ever did get here, what would the aliens want? None of these are good for us <laughs> if they ever did get here. Uh, obviously, if they come here, they have to exist and they have to want to travel here. And this is a big problem because this is very difficult no matter what your technology is. In UFOlogy, it's all based on negative evidence, that is, uh, and special terms, and uh, eyewitness, and eyewitness error, falsification, collecting evidence, but no attempt is ever made to solve a case. They just want to make it more mysterious. So if we ever did contact aliens, almost certainly it would be a signal radio uh, electromagnetic radiation that would be clear. <laughs> now, you should be wary of aliens bearing gifts. As in this uh, Twilight Zone episode, this alien shows up at the UN and says, I'm going to give you all these good things, and he, sure enough, he does. He has this book in his hand, and the book uh, is in their language, and finally some linguistic people translate the title of the book and the title of the book is To Serve Man. And uh, one of the linguists decides to go to their planet. He, the planet's offering all the humans to go to their planet, and it's a wonderful, beautiful world. So people are getting on a flying saucer to go to their world. And the other linguist comes running out and said, The book, To Serve Man, it's a cookbook. <laughs> extraordinary claim, demand, extraordinary proof. And here's the evidence for alien There's no physical evidence, no scientific evidence, no rational evidence, no imaging, no electromagnetic evidence. There is no evidence. This is all a 70-year-old story wrapped in conspiracy theories inside a myth held together by magic and superstition telling a fairy tale. If this was true, every... One of these would have to be in the conspiracy to hide this, the governments, the military, the scientific community, and the media. So we have a myth of magic and superstition. <laughs> Extraterrestrial life is, an, is a very compelling question. The answer, we don't know whether there's any out there. We do know there is no evidence for it today. And we do know it would be very difficult to get here. Thank you very much. We have time for one or two questions. Yes. Um, I have a question because I, d I didn't know about Mogul before, but I was a shortwave listener before they had the internet. And I, whenever I listen to Europe, uh, once in a while, a very loud chirp would come in. And, and we knew that chirp was, eventually I found out the chirp was a very high a radiation signal coming from Russia trying to in interfere with something. And what I'm wondering is, were they trying to interfere with Mogul or these Rowans trying to listen to them? Or today? Well, I know f there was, uh, the Russians were trying to take countermeasures against us listening to them. I wasn't aware of the Mogul experiment, but I'm wondering if the high-powered well, chirp I, I was I, hearing I'm not at liberty to talk about a lot of was a countermeasure against they, Mogul. They do something new every day. That's well, well no, I, it stopped at the end of the Cold War. Um, but, I'm, but I'm talking about since the end of the Cold War, they still do. No, but I'm saying for many years, and it would just, uh, shortwave radio works off the upper, upper atmosphere, and it was very annoying when this chirp happened to come through on your signal and interfere with everything. It would change with whatever was the best uh, signal to bounce off towards the Soviet Union. 
And I'm, I'm just wondering if the Soviets were trying to interfere with us listening to them with Mogul. Uh, I'm, I'm, I back, back then? Yeah. The Russians never knew about Mogul back then. We do all kinds of other Well, it seems to me eventually they figured it out because a, a chirp well, would have knocked out anything. They tried to do all kinds of countermeasures. It was damn loud. They tried to do all kinds of things mm -hmm. inside the United States to disrupt yeah. things, not elections, other yeah. things. Well, I'm just wondering if it had something to do with Mogul. Yeah. Actually, it's getting late, so I think that Major McGehee would be happy to answer your questions afterwards. I will stamp student assignments down here because it is getting late and some people need to leave. Um, telescope's not open, and hopefully we'll see you in two weeks when we'll have Leah Medeiros talk about computing black hole models. Thank you.